As you might know from your order of service or the announcements, the title of the sermon today is What I Learned in Alaska. And as you can feel, this is not Alaska today. Not, not in the time I went, anyway. After a period of about 20 years, <clears throat> drifting away from all things spiritual, religious, Jesus, God, anything to do with anything that was not just my daily, daily life and my concerns about survival. I wanted to take time in a place where I could be with myself, rediscovering the essence of my being, being just totally immersed in silence and in just, just being, just thinking about nothing else but whatever will come as a great revelation. So there I thought, in this place, I could be totally lost, like I had never been, in a magical embrace with the source of all, unified with all that is. I wanted that magical experience that so many people talk about. And sometimes I had felt it when I was a child, when I was really a good um, Catholic girl. And um, really, I, I really appreciate very much of the Catholicism, that spirit of discipline, uh, many of you know that I was in boarding school from age seven and a half until I was 18. So I have a real good discipline, and I appreciated very much the sense of freedom in thought that I gave myself and that you know, I could manage, and, uh, but also the connection with the universe, the connection with the stars, the connection with everything that is. And so then I lost it, and I said after, 20 years, about a period of 20 years, which I call <clears throat> the desert of my spiritual life. Although after visiting the desert, I realized desert is very much alive. So it's a misnomer to say desert when you are referring to something arid and barren. But this was a horrible, not horrible, but it was a period in my life where I didn't feel much alive, just day to day. Anyway. When I had the opportunity to participate in a women's 11-day retreat called Silence and Wildness in Alaska, just imagine, I just jumped at the opportunity, I said, Alaska? And they said, yeah, there is still one place if you want to take it right now. And I had to make my decision. I remember in the kitchen of seminary. And uh, so I made my decision, bought a backpack, bought all the implements for hiking because it was going to be rough. And, um, and I just went. So for 11 days, I slept in a tent facing these beautiful glaciers and beautiful mountains of the Kenai Peninsula and lived under the most primitive conditions I had ever lived before. It only took me a few hours of splendid sunshine and pure air to feel the desire to stretch myself to go beyond any boundaries and to be engulfed in an irresistible zest for life. <clears throat> Excuse me, I am like. One day after having passed vast extensions of land and waters available for homesteading, and after seeing several cabins strategically posed, you know, in this beautiful scenario and these beautiful uh, lands, I started fantasizing about what would I do if I were lucky enough to find myself a really rough maverick of a man with pioneer drive and with the most sensitive and compassionate heart. 
So imagine I would say to myself, excuse me? Okay, yeah, that's what you should do. If you don't understand something, just let me, let me know. Okay, simple water. So which, which one would be? The whole thing, one day? Oh, <laughs> here is my man. Okay, imagine I would say to myself, what kind of self-sufficient and fulfilling life we could live in a place like this. These fantasies, however, would quickly go out of the bus window at the mere thought, mere thought of the Alaskan long and dark winters. So much for my pioneer spirit. I learned that Spaniards initially colonized Alaska and saw the names Puerto Valdez and Cordoba. After the Spaniards came, who? The French, then the Russians, the English, and some years later, the Russians took another turn until in 1869, when they sold mainland Alaska to the USA. Once I learned about this ownership merry-go-round, I started playing this childless game, and I recognized it was very, very childish. I would look at the sky and the mountains, saying aloud, I am in Alaska, the Russian name for Alaska. This is Russian sky, these are Russian mountains. Then changing the name of the country, I would say these are Spanish mountains and flowers, or French or English. Once I got so involved in this game that I even got scared thinking, if some Russian finds me here, I'll be in trouble since I don't know the language or even have a visa. On my way to the retreat, the bus was rolling along some towering mountains. Suddenly, I felt this strange sensation that the mountains and the sky were looking at me, in fact, telling me in a loud yet silent scream, all your political struggles for possession of the land and the waters, all your proud races to win wars, all your fierce strive to explore to conquer, to be there first, so you can give the highest peaks and the indomitable wild places the names of your generals and explorers. All that, how inane and futile. You who have appropriated for yourselves dominance over this planet based on what you call sacred books, you mortals, we pity you. We pity your delus delusions of grandeur that make you think that by naming us, you possess us, that by exchanging your so-called ownership of us, you affect us. We pity you. Already billions of you, the human species, have come and gone. Perhaps barring a doom dooming act by your kind, you will be gone forever before we, the elements of the earth and the sky, change or disappear. Those words will keep repeating in my consciousness when I was in the presence of the inscrutable, rigid, three and a half million years old Greenwich Glacier. They haunted me as I in awe contemplated the extravagant size of the Alaskan queen and lace flowers. At moments when I was engaged pondering the larger issues of existence and the relevance of it all, 
I would remember the following poem titled At the Extreme by the late Unitarian Universalist Kenneth Helfand. I am the sun. Recurring explosions in majestic cadences fill my soul. At my center, my temperature is infinity. I fuse with the universe, and I am no more. I am a glacier, infinitely large, impenetrably cold, silent, immobile. At my center, my temperature is absolute zero. I detach from the universe, and I am no more. It was precisely in one of those paradoxical moments when I was feeling so small and finite, so detached from the universe, and yet so immensely large and overflowing with power and love as I was fusing with the universe. It was precisely at one of those moments I was feeling that I was no more, that I experienced for an instant an eerie certainty that a creator being, call it God, universal intelligence, or the source, could not possibly exist. For who or what, my mind asked, no matter how omnipotent, no matter how infinite and wise, could have created so much beauty, so much abundance, so much chaos? Who or what could possibly have created an entire universe of which Alaska, even with all its majestic territory, was only an infinitesimal part? Who or what could have conceived and carried out the creation of a world so full of opposites, of such perfect logic, and of such aberrations? For a speck of time, the whole of me was suspended as if in a vacuum dissolved in an amorphous ethereal matter. There were neither frontiers nor dimensions, only the feeling that I was at the center of a timeless, spaceless, and motionless moment. I was no more who or what I had been. When I came out of this experience, I realized that the thought that there was no primary cause of creation that nothing and nobody could have produced our universe was a mere projection, perhaps, of my insignificance and of my inability to comprehend any of the myriad mysteries surrounding every moment of our existence. I have returned to that moment of denial only to, to be grateful. I am grateful because now I know I have an inkling, at least, of how it feels to be a true atheist or agnostic. I now had experience, if only for the briefest time, how it is possible to feel the certainty that there was no creator, no God, at least not the God of the creator, that my limited brain tried to conceive. Even more, I remember experiencing an empty peace. I often wonder what would have happened to my spirit if I had stayed in that peaceful denial. At times, I had felt that probably it is not so bad to live without the pangs of doubt, without the dark nights of the soul resulting from the hide-and-seek game that the soul and the divine played at times. 
I had felt that I could live stoically, doing the best I can to be human, to be decent and compassionate, and enjoying the rewards that kind of life brings. I know by experience that it is possible to live a productive and decent life without worrying too much whether or not God exists or whether or not God is fair in view of the apparently inexplicable injustices and evil we witness in the world. I also know that it is possible to live a life of resignation in view of the fact that we are small, subject at least in part to the whims of greater powers or to the role of an unconcerned cosmic dice. In what I consider a moment of grace, this is very personal, something brought me out of the awesome experience of the void I was experiencing. I felt as if I were on a high trapeze and was saved by falling into a bottomless pit by the sweetness, most tender cosmic embrace of life. My heart kept asking grave questions. Is the peace of the void enough for you? Can you live without the love and passion for the beloved that you have experienced before? Well, can you? The answer was always a categorical no. I puzzled over why being in one of the most awesome spots on earth did not bring me closer to the peace, the joy, and union I was craving. I found it ironic that Alaska was the very place that alienated me. Was I searching for the ultimate union in the wrong place? Of course not. However, I was looking for the ultimate experience in the wrong way. Instead of looking at the awesome landscape and the physical phenomena as simple manifestations of the love and grandeur of, grandeur of the creative spirit, I kept wondering about their true origin and whether or not they were products of a creator or products of just chance. Instead of looking at the mountains and at the glaciers and at the trees and the eagles and the whales as our faithful companions on the planet, I look at them with the eyes of my intellect and reason. When, I contempl when contemplating a glacier, I would even resent its immutable and cruel silence. In a cloudy day, I would look at the sun and challenge it to break through the clouds. Come on, you big star, melt that cloud. Of course, for my own sake, I won't incite shy. I learned many lessons in Alaska about community, survival in the wild, geography, history, and lots and lots of trivia. The most vital lesson, however, was to remember and reaffirm three things. One, the moments of blissful union with all, the heightened sense of gratitude and love for existence are pure grace and not something that fills the soul on command. Two, the way to encounter the holy is emptying our beings of preconceptions and surrendering to the moment. Three, the way to apprehend the feeling of the sacred cannot be other than through our free intuition and encumbered by thought. When I returned home after that trip in Alaska, I read and reread these lines that I had underlined 
when I first encountered the cloud of unknowing, that enduring classic written by a 14th century mystic. He said, the divine, whom neither humans nor angels can grasp by knowledge, can be embraced by love. The divine, who neither humans nor angels can grasp by knowledge, can be embraced by love. How could I forgotten? As if addressing my predicament, the mystic insists that a person may know completely and ponder thoroughly every created thing and its works. Yes, and God's works, too, but not God's self. He continues, though cannot, thought cannot comprehend God, and so I prefer to abandon all I know, choosing rather to love that whom I cannot know. Though we cannot know the divine, we can love the divine. By love, that divine presence may be touched and embraced, never by thought. The foremost thing always to remember, and that you must surely know, of course, is that we are free to relate to the divine, to the sacred, to the holy, in any way we want. We really have free choice in this matter. We can deny its existence and thus have no need to relate. We can accept its manifestations and be grateful for them. We can go through light, through life and concern on how we appear on earth, or we can invent stories of creation. In Alaska, I made my choice, a difficult one at that. I chose love with all its hassles rather than peace with a void. Son, my husband, and I just returned from an awesome trip to the West where we attended General Assembly and took a long vacation. What a trip this was. Silence, loss of silence, monumental, spectacular rocks, awesome double rainbows, canyons, peaks, summer rains, and placid bubbling brooks, meadows covered with wildflowers, stars, and dry summer heat in the hundreds. This time I just took everything in my soul and mind without questioning or resentment, but rather with overflowing gratitude for the privilege of having been able to visit those wild places. No more complaints about no sunshine or the silence of the glaciers. This time, the inscrutable silence of rocks and stars did not offend me. It made me humble and grateful being in their presence. I am sure this is because I continue loyal to my decision to abandon all I know, choosing rather to love that whom I cannot know, touching and embracing the divine whom these elements manifest by love, never by thought. So may all we choose to be grateful and loving to the source of all, to the spirit of life, for our existence and for all the gifts we receive each day. May we all be able to practice the following advice of the great Persian poet, teacher and mystic of the 13th century, you know that, Rumi. He said, sell your cleverness 
and by bewilderment. Amen and blessed be.